Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for today's SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today is May 26, 2021. And we're going to be taking a look at three questions we've been hearing from international educators this past week based on the news stories we've been seeing. And we're going to get to those in just a few minutes. But before we do, I want to say a special end of the year shout out to those that have children graduating from uh, high school, college, elementary school, uh, kindergarten, whatever it may be. Uh, Certainly the end of a long school year, unlike any other we've ever seen, uh, with a lot of challenges uh, that certainly... Uh, we've, we've all felt as parents and as educators, and we're going to be taking a look at the impact of some of those in the weeks and months to come, uh, some of the uh, year-long, uh, more than year-long impact of COVID-19 on our schooling and education system. Uh, before we do that, though, a special shout out to those watching live here on Facebook, those watching on repeat, either on our YouTube channel or our Facebook page for SMIE Consulting. And also, uh, who can forget our podcast listeners who are now pushing us ever closer to the 1,500 download uh, mark, and we're grateful for you making us a part of your weekly listening habits. So thank you so much. And today, we'll get into our stories as we do, our questions as we do each week. And for those that are new to the Roundup, uh, we put out a newsletter on Monday mornings uh, called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. And in case you're wondering, SMIE stands for Social Media and International Education. Anyone who knows me well from my time at Education USA, even before then, those two things are like bread and butter for me. They go together. Peanut butter and jelly, whatever metaphor you'd like to use, uh, that is my career in international education has been those two, the confluence of those two elements. And we'll talk about how that works, uh, particularly with our first question today. But uh, all that newsletter comes out Monday morning, 9 a.m. If you'd like to subscribe, I'm dropping the link to this most recent edition that came out on Monday the 24th. And we'll be getting to all of those questions that we're talking about uh, that come out of that newsletter uh, in just a moment. Uh, but so feel free to subscribe. It's free uh, at smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. And we'll add you to the, to the mailing list and get you uh, the newsletter each Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. Now let's get to our first question. How personal will you get in student communications? Now this is a long, uh, seems like a simple uh, question, but uh, there really are many layers to it because when you think about it, personalization is something we expect. We expect people, and just just in our daily lives, so we expect people, and particularly people we're buying services from, uh, to want to get to know us. uh, if it were looking at a longer term relationship, uh, uh, whether it's the pizza delivery boy that uh, comes every week uh, for your Friday night pizza roundup, uh, whether it's uh, the uh, daycare center where you, you send your send your children to, uh, whether it's uh, schools that you uh, and parents that you get to know or uh, if you're applying to schools as a as a student, uh, you want to feel wanted. And the way that's demonstrated oftentimes is uh, in how personal uh, those um, providers, uh, for lack of a better word, are willing to get with you. How close of a relationship are they looking to establish with you? How far will they go to make you feel welcome? And as educators, as admissions representatives, particularly international admissions folks, this is at the core of why we do what we do, is the relationships we're able to establish with uh, prospects, with their parents oftentimes, that continue long beyond the admissions process and even uh, can last years, decades even. 
I've been very fortunate in my career to have recruited in students at institutions in four different states and another foreign country. And I have, uh, have students and parents that I've met through that process as prospective students that became uh, students enrolled uh, and then graduates that I'm still in touch with. And that's really uh, the most sad, one of the most satisfying elements of my career is are those relationships with students and parents I've been able to establish over the years. So how personal are you getting with your prospective students uh, in terms of how personalized an approach are you building into your international admissions efforts? Uh, and there's a lot of different ways that this can be manifest in terms of email communications, in terms of uh, live chats, one-on-one uh, -on -one chats, whatever it might be, personalized video messages. And that's where our first question really gets its, uh, its origin story this week. It comes from a college in Texas, a state university, West Texas A&M University, uh, hopes uh, the president there had, had a real desire uh, to become more involved in the admissions process for these for their prospective students coming in. Uh, and as a result, he committed to spend over 200 hours of quick video messages to every admitted student to West Texas A&M uh, for this fall term. And their last count, there were 3,000 videos for the 3,000 admitted students that this president of a public regional public university to try and stave off potential enrollment declines that he that they had foreseen uh, has really committed to being uh, in the thick of it and personalizing messages. So it would be uh, you'd have a teleprompter that would scroll through the names and desired majors of the admitted students who were looking to come uh, who had been admitted to that public regional university in Canyon, Texas. Uh, he completed that our, each of these videos is between 16 and 19 seconds long over the course of those 200 hours. Didn't have a script really, but most of the videos followed a similar format. Uh, I'm the president of WT, and I know that you've been accepted into the journalism program for the fall semester. We really hope to see you on campus. Canyon is a great place to be, and that's an example of what his message was to each of the prospective students that were admitted to that institution. Uh, and so, some say uh, that this is, wow, this is really unnecessary or just tedious uh, for a college president to be doing that. And certainly there are college presidents who wouldn't uh, give this project the time of day, uh, particularly at large state institutions that might have 10,000 students that they'd be admitting each year. That's uh, obviously quite a chunk of time for a university president to be taking. But you can imagine something like this happening at a more uh, smaller institution, smaller liberal arts colleges that maybe only have two to 400 uh, admitted students, new students admitted each year. So it's really interesting to see this. But this, this president, I think, has really taken on the responsibility, not just to uh, delegate to admissions and other folks involved in the enrollment management process. He's really gone above and beyond, not only recording these videos, but the article also go on, goes on to uh, include uh, some of his other steps that he's really taken this year. Uh, in 20, uh, between spring of 2017 and fall of 2019, he visited 130 Texas high schools across the state. And during the tour, he reached 20,000 students and traveled about 15,000 miles over that nearly uh, year and a half period, uh, where they, um, two year, two and a half year period actually, uh, that uh, he uh, have become, it has, be it has become his mission to really 
break down brick walls that uh, really define uh, relationships between uh, prospective students and university administrations. Uh, that uh, these universities are uh, no longer just buildings, these are people and relationships. So he, he takes it, uh, he, and this is, I love his quote here, as you expose students to the university and talk about the institution and why they might be interested, I just think it's got to be personal. And I love that from a university president taking that approach, not only just this is a message and this is how I want you admissions folks to live it out. He's taking, he's putting his, his actions where his, uh, where his mouth is and uh, really walking, walking the walk and walking the talk, excuse me, and uh, really living it out and making the approach to admissions, the approach to relationships he wants to establish with students personal. And I love that. That's just a, a, such a refreshing message to hear that from an institutional leader. Uh, even though it's a, a small regional, regional public university, that I think uh, shows what, frankly, most schools should be. That unless you're the elites when you don't have to worry about that because your admit rates are low single digits and you get more applications than, than you really could ever hope to manage, uh, where you, don't, you can afford to be as selective as you want to be and uh, frankly, uh, you know what you're going to get uh, when, when you admit a class. Uh, at other, not a, very few schools are in that position, frankly, uh, where they can pick and choose uh, as, as, from as broad a selection as, as, as some of the elite schools have. So the majority of, of institutions really are driven by how um, to, to, to make sure they have their class. They, there's a lot of pressure on them. So this president, Walter Wendler, uh, is uh, he is uh, he is taking it upon himself to make make the effort, and I think this is reflected. Obviously, this is a, a large, a small regional public school in the U.S. Uh, in Texas, uh, and very few of those three thousand, I'm assuming, are going to be international students. But he's making that effort, uh, and I think that that concept is something that really resonates, uh, has to resonate even more so uh, for international audiences because they don't have the chance to visit ever, and especially during a pandemic year. Uh, they are seeing videos on, on, your, on your YouTube channel or on your, on your uh, institutional website, uh, but they, are they really getting personal attention from you? And what does that look like for you as an international admissions office? And I, I think there's a lot, and I, I have an article coming out on this very topic uh, for my fifth in a series on the six P's of strategic international enrollment management. That'll be coming out in another week or so uh, with um, from my colleagues at IDP Connect uh, through, for that series. So I'll certainly uh, be talking about that more in depth uh, during that's uh, the week that, that week after that comes out. But uh, there are elements of what I'm talking about, and that sixth, fifth of the six P's is personalization, that I see reflected, obviously, this president's approach at West Texas A&M uh, certainly reflects it. Uh, but there's also other, other providers that out there that are resonating this similar message. And uh, friends over at Uniquest are also uh, tied into this, one of their uh, major providers. Uh, uh, services that they provide institutions is help in the email communication process, help with uh, the communication flow with your prospective student audiences from overseas. Uh, their UK business has been expanded into the U.S. in the last few years, and they, 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 I do, have, they do come up with some really outstanding uh, thought leadership uh, uh, articles, but also some very concrete ways that institutions can uh, really adapt and adopt a, an approach 
uh, to their communication flow that is a much more personalized one. And I, I, I really want to highlight an article here that uh, came out in the past week uh, entitled, Three Steps to Turning Inquiries into Enrollments. And it sounds like a very basic uh, title and one that everybody should know how to do, uh, but uh, how to do it better is really, the, you know, I think, the goal with this article. And they, have, uh, they allude to three key areas that I think uh, are important to make a difference in your relationship with your prospective student audiences, international audiences. First up is prompt support. Uh, they say that this is a, uh, you if you're responding uh, across all channels, across all time zones as quickly as prospective students expect, that's gonna help you reputationally with your prospective audiences. Uh, that expectation, when and their expectations are high. Uh, they've surveyed their own, their, the students that are engaged through their, uh, their, their, uh, their university providers that 82% of prospective students expect a response to their inquiry within 24 hours. So the 24-hour rule, that's kind of the standard rule these days. Uh, some say it's one business day, uh, one calendar day, others will go 24 hours. So that is really the differentiator in terms of meeting expectations. Uh, for uh, your student audiences. Uh, there are colleges that will further down the ch application process that, uh, that when you apply and are completed, uh, there are some colleges I work with that um, will, will take four to six weeks to make a decision. And when they don't have all but th transcripts and English test scores that are the determinants and an application form that are the determinants of that decision. So that's something that is clearly not taking a personalized approach to your international student audiences uh, and any audiences that uh, when not in this day and age to wait to make a student wait four to six weeks unless you have a deadline and then you don't release decisions until two months after that deadline that's that's one thing but if you're on rolling admissions to take four to six weeks after a completed application comes in to give a decision is absolutely ludicrous and is going to put you further down the pecking order uh, in that student's opinion of you as an institution if that's how much you're showing you value them as individuals and then take, not taking a very non-personalized approach. So by providing prompt support, you're answering those questions, you're getting in front of those students quickly uh, and getting your, uh, treating them as individuals and acknowledging their, their needs, acknowledging their questions and answering them in timely fashion. The next thing that the Uniquest folks uh, recommend is proactive encouragement. That uh, it's not, that first inquiry is is key in terms of your response time, but it's also key in terms of driving them, those students, to convert, to apply. Uh, so this is one uh, prospective students, international students uh, comment here. After the conversation I had with you, I actually started considering this university more because of how cooperative and nice you are, and I'm liking the options I see on the website. So that conversation, either through email, through a live chat, whatever it might be, at that beginning stage of the process is, is where an institution can show their commitment to uh, individual student prospects and at potential applicants. And that is, if you can be encouraging, if you can show per, uh, 
a direct uh, answer to a student's question in a conversation that you can direct them to the uh, information they need on your site that maybe gives more in depth than you are able to do in a simple email or want to do in a simple email. Uh, whether it's a WhatsApp response to, uh, to a question that a student has, uh, back and forth chat, whatever it might be on a live chat. These are the things that make a difference in how accessible, how personalized, and how responsive you are. That matters. And the third piece in that puzzle for the Uniquest folks is the personalized communication. And this is uh, that they, when you're providing content to students that they want and need. Uh, that in a, in a timely manner, uh, in uh, as early in the process as possible. And another student quote on this one, I really thank you for the communication and constant calls to applicants like me. I really appreciate this a lot despite the pandemic. So this is in reference to uh, Uniquest, one of their, uh, one of their uh, features that they build into their services are, are text and uh, call banks uh, to prospective student audiences and applicants. And that becomes a central part of uh, the communication and the personalized approach of communication strategy institutions they work with uh, take towards their prospective student audiences, particularly international students. So the, the examples that are given here are um, primarily UK-based, but they're, they do reference their U.S. audiences as well. So I think there's some uh, great, great articles, uh, great content in this article that is kind of best practices as far as I'm concerned in terms of how you can manage uh, this, uh, this process, the communication process with your prospective student audiences. I think that's there's real value in this personalized approach as a de facto, this is, this is the rule. Uh, this is the way you should, uh, de jure, uh, this is the way you should be approaching your communication uh, process with your prospective audiences internationally. So that's our first question. A second question is a little bit deeper. And this is one that uh, we've got to consider the times we're in. And the question is, what are we doing for Indian students now? And there's two levels to this question. It's, what are we doing for international students that are already on our campus from India, uh, who, who's, who obviously their home country is going through an incredibly tumultuous period with the, their second wave and mo most deadly wave of COVID-19 that they've seen. Uh, at a time when in the West, uh, we're uh, we're, we're, our vaccinations are readily available and that uh, rates are, are climbing highly. Uh, but in, in India, the, even though there are vaccines available, there's only, I think, less than 10% of the population, obviously a very large population, that have been able to be vaccinated. Uh, they have um, a version of AstraZeneca that is widely available in India. They have a Russian variants as well called Sputnik uh, that they have. So there are vaccines that are being given there. Uh, but you wonder, um, uh, they're, they're, they're not able to keep up, obviously, with a huge population and the, the incredible uh, pressures, unlike any we've seen here in the U.S., certainly, pressures that their healthcare system is having in terms of not having basics like oxygen available uh, for those that are having to go on ventilators. Uh, this is a, a, obviously a serious uh, time in India's history, and how the rest of the world responds is, is important in helping uh, the second largest country in the world that may soon be the largest in the world in terms of population. So, but on a, on a micro level, uh, what are we doing for our Indian students that are currently enrolled on our campus or maybe studying remotely that are back home in India? How are we caring for them right now? Uh, are there uh, bursaries that are being given or uh, emergency aid that's being given to those students? Many are not able to travel back home 
uh, to, to be with family that might be suffering and don't, maybe don't, are told that don't come home because of that, uh, because it's, uh, they're, they're concerned about uh, what, what might happen. I know colleagues who are of Indian descent that are, are, are born there, came here as international students and have developed a career for themselves. They are now, uh, uh, who have parents back in India, they were, uh, I know a couple that have been trying to get their parents to come to the U.S. and haven't been able to because flights have been canceled. Uh, so there's some real challenges here and uh, a very uncertain time uh, for your currently enrolled international students from India and how they are managing all their, all their, all their uh, the potential crises they're facing and their parents are, might be facing, family might be facing back home. Uh, obviously, that uncertainty uh, is can cause cause some upset and and grief and uh, some uh, real challenges for students when they don't really know and can't be there for for family back home that are in the midst of this uh, pandemic. Um, so it's what are you doing for your current Indian students and communicating with them? Uh, I think is something that uh, during a pandemic this should be as open as possible as you can be on your campuses with your prospective audiences when you have these kinds of uh, situations. Obviously, India is not the only country struggling with this, uh, with the pandemic right now. Brazil has been struggling with this. Argentina is struggling with this. Many other countries are still in the midst of a major crisis and upswing in, in, uh, in cases and deaths. And it's, it's, it demands attention. Uh, but uh, having open communications and constant communications and individualized communication, going back to that personal attention piece, is necessary. Uh, for your ISSS offices to be regularly in touch with these folks. Uh, and because how you're treating your students now in the pandemic really speaks volumes to how you treat them, treat all students at all times on your campus. And uh, especially when, uh, when times are tough, uh, particularly when students are thousands of miles from home, you need to be there for them uh, and help show that your, your compassion and your empathy for their situations. Uh, sympathy for their situations, depending on where you are from. Uh, so this is important. So it's on one level, it's what are you doing for your currently enrolled Indian students to help them? Uh, that uh, the, the the experts. Uh, and this is this is interesting to see what the, the one of the quotes from this Indian article Amer on, in American Bazaar is uh, with Indian chapters said to be one of the most active in many renowned U.S. universities, Indian student associations, what have you, their experts are questioning the lack of any substantial help from any of the U.S.-based universities for their enrolled students from India. So there's concern out there. Uh, there uh, we, we've seen uh, current, students in, current students now will have access to higher ed relief aid from the federal government, so that's great for in, currently enrolled students to have access to that because we all know that the economies worldwide have taken a hit uh, due to the pandemic and uh, many families that have had, have had struggled as, as have families in the U.S. when parents have lost jobs uh, that uh, struggling to pay the, pay the bills or you know, there's aid that's been made available, whether institutional aid or federal aid that students can have to help offset costs. So something like that should be happening uh, on campus as well in terms of how you're helping your international students that might be in these very similar situations. So if you're doing it for your domestic students, why wouldn't you do it for your international students? So just a bit of logic there. Hopefully that sinks home. But the other, other more positive news is for Indian students that are in the pipeline right now that are looking to come in the fall. Uh, what is the U.S. doing for them? Uh, and certainly you're seeing that and we, when the uh, initial 
80% of the world going under the State Department travel level four ban, uh, travel bans, uh, don't travel, telling US, uh, US travelers do not travel to these countries. Uh, that was quickly followed up by uh, the exemption for students from those countries that are, are red listed at this time because of health, uh, health considerations. Uh, students from those countries, if getting successful visas and now having access to consulates to do that, uh, are now able to come. Obviously, August 1st is the earliest date for a start date on an I-20 that an Indian student can have a visa and come for studies in the fall. Uh, that uh, is a bit of a challenge right now since embassies, because of health conditions and consulates in India, have had to close. Uh, there's no word yet on when they're reopening, but uh, emergency appointments are available uh, in those cases right now, uh, but there's no real emergency since they can't really get in until the first of India anyway, unless you're a returning student. So there's some uh, interesting challenges here, but how as a country we're showing, hey, our doors are open. And that's one thing that the article does allude to is it says, while the UK, New Zealand, and Australia have temporarily shut their borders to students from India due to COVID scare, the US has exempted those with F1 uh, or student visas from this travel ban. So that's encouraging because we're, we're standing out. Whereas um, last year we were at the tail end of the Trump administration, there was, a, there, there was still that anti-immigrant rhetoric. There was still the, uh, we're not, we're not, we're just, we're not going to let uh, new folks in unless you're on campus and fully, fully enrolled in in-person classes, you wouldn't be able to come in. That thankfully didn't happen for returning students. New students could enroll. Uh, that way, uh, though they really didn't have access to embassies and consulates then. Uh, so there, there, there's, there's been a change in terms of our, how we're viewed now in the world, I think, uh, based on the administration's actions uh, and their rhetoric, are matching now uh, and are on the same page and welcoming and open as much as we can be uh, to, to the world. So encouraged by that and looking forward to seeing more steps that will continue to build on the relationship between India and the U.S. Now our final topic, uh, and I don't like to beat a, a dead horse, uh, but and not saying Australia is a dead horse, but they have suffered uh, from, from lack of a better phrase, self-inflicted wounds uh, related to international education over the last, uh, last few months. Obviously, um, most all countries shut down their borders in the middle of March uh, last year in 2020, and as a response to the pandemic, and uh, Australia, New Zealand uh, were, were, were applauded early, particularly New Zealand for uh, their uh, quick response and clampdowns and restrictions that limited the number of cases in those countries, island nations. But there came a point where the other countries began to reopen. The UK did, uh, the US has, uh, Canada has did in October last year uh, to international travel and international student travel especially. Um, now, Australia has, even though conditions on the ground have been very stable and, and declining, there haven't been huge second and third waves of COVID-19. They never had anything really huge uh, in, in, that, in those countries, in particularly Australia. But the, the real question is, when will the Australian government wake up and realize the damage that they've done and are continuing to do to uh, their institutions of higher education? And there are five stories that I'll be sharing the links to uh, that are also in the newsletter from this past week. Uh, first up is one that is, uh, that isn't necessarily the fault of the Australian government, but certainly is one that we've seen across the globe uh, is related to Confucius Institutes. 
that the um, first article title is Conf China Backed Confucius Institutes Face Closure Under Veto Laws. And this isn't something necessarily the Australian government needs to wake up from, but it's, it's, a, it's having a negative impact on relations with China. We've seen that in the United States, obviously, during the previous administration. Uh, we have a number uh, of these centers. Confucius Institutes are, are, are in the process of closing uh, under the cover of budget pressures due to the, due to the pandemic. But uh, there's obviously larger um, geopolitical considerations here in these new veto laws that are allowing, uh, allowing the national government to basically, uh, there are 13 existing uh, Confucius Institutes at Australian universities right now uh, that, uh, that they are seen by the government uh, that as functions of the Chinese Communist Party propaganda efforts. And no doubt that that's, that's certainly the case. Uh, in the U.S. as well as Australia and other countries where they've been shut down. Uh, so there have been other various issues that have been involved, but certainly this is, um, this is uh, the, the federal government stepping in uh, to, uh, to take action in many cases and, and close these. So that, uh, the future of Confucius Institutes in Australia certainly does not look bright. Uh, we're 13 now, already a couple in the process of closing, so that number will be single digits before you know it. Uh, second one is states are awaiting responses on quarantine proposals uh, from the federal government in Australia. So uh, each of the states, and we know how valuable um, international students are to the Australian economy. Uh, they're um, 30 plus billion uh, Australian dollars a year, uh, and they've lost one to two billion in the past year alone because of the lack of international students that have been physically able to come since the borders have been closed. Uh, the Australian government saying nothing before, no widespread do uh, opening of borders until minimum 2022, maybe even 2023. Uh, so what's being done now are some trial periods or proposals that uh, the individual Australian states, uh, like New South Wales and others that are uh, Victoria, uh, are looking to uh, provide uh, uh, small cohorts to come in. Uh, to uh, to and go into quarantine for a couple of weeks before, and tested and maybe even vaccinated depending on on the student before they're able to uh, enter uh, enter the country and begin formal studies in person. So all these plans are now basically on hold uh, with uh, with the national government and waiting awaiting approval. So we'll see where those goes. We're, uh, we're not sure how quickly, but it's certainly uh, there. There may be some pilot projects done in the fall, our fall, their spring. Uh, that uh, would allow for small groups up to 600. I think there's one state that's uh, got a 600-bed quarantine facility. That's one of the stories that we'll be touching on now. Uh, but other concerns, really, uh, we see the overall numbers, even in, when you include uh, international students that are studying remotely, uh, even the second year of the pandemic uh, that, are, that started in March, uh, international student uh, new starts were down 31% in uh, this, this of our fiscal, uh, calendar year 2021. And that's uh, certainly showing, includes, I think the numbers are much larger, obviously, because 69% did not start uh, physically in, the in, in Australia. Uh, 60, the other 69% uh, of uh, the 69% that did start were, were starting remotely um, in terms of, of those figures. So I think that there's, there's, there's going to be lingering concerns there on how sustainable this continued decline in uh, new stu international student starts will be.
uh, and we're going to see even in the next article from Eridera uh, is Australia 93% of international students stranded abroad that is they're they're taking student study began studies remotely or returning students that are not able to get back in that are continuing their studies doing it remotely from their home country 93% are reporting mental health issues due to remote study and that's not surprising frankly when the expectation was to be in person, not having that expectation met, having to begin as many students in India have done, uh, studying in, in Australia, doing so from their phones and how challenging that has been for them. So uh, and that's not what they're paying the money that is basically the same whether they were in person or, or studying remotely uh, for the tuition piece. So that is not surprising that you're seeing these kind of levels, but 93%, that's, that's significant and uh, one that certainly will demand a lot of attention from Australian institutions, and it's going to be interesting to see how they how they uh, line up on that res in that respect. So that's all we have for today for the midweek roundup. We want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy weeks uh, to uh, make uh, the roundup a part of your international edification. I uh, just want to give a special uh, introduction. Uh, we're going to be starting uh, for those of you who are on Clubhouse. Uh, we're going to be starting a, a room on Clubhouse called International Edification. And that will be kind of a jumping off point for some of the key themes we've been talking about on visas, vaccinations, borders, all of these things, uh, personalization, all of the international admissions related topics that we talk about here on the, um, as part of the roundup, we'll be uh, launching that in the next couple of weeks on Clubhouse. So if you're already on there, be looking for the room International Edification. Try and find me on there if you'd like, Marty Bennett, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, happy, happily continue conversations there. So until next time, thank you for making us a part of your week, and we look forward to catching up with you soon. Cheers.